Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. changed a bit. He has stood for Jesus, and he's got a brilliant mind and a compassionate heart, and he's here today to deliver the word of God to you. So would you please stand to your feet, and would you give honor where honor is due for Dr. Michael Brown. Come on, give him your best as he comes. Praise God. Thank you so much. And you can be seated. All right, what a Joy to be with you. We spent the day in here yesterday from uh, 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon. If you were some of the intrepid folks, raise your hand. Come on. Wonderful. And then met with a bunch of leaders at Pastor Scott's last night for a few more hours and got to sleep in between. So here we are. Uh, I do want to say about being stalked that your pastor is a friendly stalker and a respectful stalker. But we were here with you a few years ago and got to connect with Pastor Ronza as well. So, so glad to see what God's doing in Louisiana. The only, only problem with traveling in and out of Lafayette, for those who may not have noticed, you don't have a really big airport. And you have to fly in here by somewhere else, basically. So while you are enjoying family time and hanging out and watching the Super Bowl... I will be on my second flight while the rest of my family sits around wondering where I am. Anyway, it's missing a Super Bowl game is not the end of the world for those that just... Now, hang on, hang on. What if it was pastor called for a Monday night prayer, but it happened to be national championship and LSU was playing... <laughs> Uh, that would be a little dicey, a little challenging. Okay. Hey, one thing we'd love to do is we'd love to be a resource for you all the time. Every day when I'm on the radio, we remind folks that, that we're here to infuse you with faith and truth and courage so you can stand strong on the front lines. We're, we're all, our, our radio broadcast is called The Line of Fire, but we're all in the line of fire today. As followers of Jesus, we're under attack. As followers of Jesus, the, the war is on. That's the reality. And, and we want to help equip you and strengthen you on the front line. So maybe you're watching the news and you feel like pulling your hair out. You're so frustrated by seeing what's happening in the political world. And Well, we're addressing these things. Every single week we're talking about the world you're living in and saying, hey, here's how we approach it from the Word. So, so as I say on the air, I promise not to get your blood boiling unless I also get your faith rising. So we'll talk about the crazy stuff and then say, right, but here's, here's God's perspective or here's how we handle it. So you may not be able to catch all the broadcasts. I write multiple articles every week, hard to keep track of all of them. So we let you know every single week, hear the latest articles, hear the latest videos. We do it by email. And then once a month, we just started it this new year, we're sending out what we call the Frontline Newsletter. It's absolutely free, but a, a message that will really stir you and inspire you great testimonies that will really bless you, and then just for fun, a Hebrew word study each month and, and some other neat things. So it's, it's our way of just pouring into you every month to strengthen you because the, body, the, the war that we're in is not going to be won by just some preacher on TV. It's, it's the body of Christ living this out. Where we are in the schools, in the homes, in the businesses, in the communities, glorifying Jesus. So uh, what was up, the code there was just for one of our social media pages, but if you take one minute here, grab your cell phones, and go to thelineoffire.org. Thelineoffire.org. So you can do that, thelineoffire.org. And right there on the homepage, you'll see we can sign up for the Frontline Newsletter. Yeah, so that, that's the Instagram page. That's separate. So thelineoffire.org. And then just type in your name and email, and that's it. And, and we'll put you in our welcome program. We'll share more about my testimony from LSD to PhD, getting saved as a heroin shooting, LSD using, 
16-year-old Jewish hippie rock drummer. Let you know the resources we have. So all how we can serve you and be a blessing. And then every week, we'll let you know, hey, here are the latest articles. Here are the latest videos. So you just check what you're interested in. And it's right there in the convenience of your, your email, your inbox. So thelineoffire.org, just fill that out. And then we will be in touch with you. And then this coming week, we'll send out our next Frontline newsletter. Uh, share the testimony of one of our spiritual sons preaching in mosques in the Middle East. Preaching Jesus in mosques in the Middle East. Yeah, we'll be talking about that. All right. With that, we will pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Father, we love you. We truly do. We're not here just out of religious ritual or because we have to be, but we're here because we want to meet with you. We want to worship you. We want to hear your word. So give us insight. Give us understanding. Take us deeper today. Those that, that only know you from a distance, bring them near. Those who only know you through their parents' faith, may they have an experience of their own. Those that do know you, give us greater insight and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to speak about a very basic, fundamental subject. What does it mean when we say that Jesus died for our sins? What is the significance of the cross? When I came to faith from a Jewish background, I had no connection to the cross, no understanding of the, the meaning of the cross. And I, I knew we would sing a lot about the blood. There's power in the blood, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. But, but why? What did it actually mean? Why does his death on the cross affect me today? You know the only thing that I heard about the cross growing up? It was a joke that my dad told me. It, it was about a Jewish kid that kept getting kicked out of school after school because he was such a troublemaker. So they, they put him in the best private Jewish schools, and he got kicked out of those. They sent him back in the public school system, he got kicked out of those. So finally, the Jewish dad, in desperation, sends him to this Catholic school in the community. And the kid comes home on his best behavior. Father's never seen anything like this. And, and the dad says to his son, what happened? He goes, well, you know, some of those other schools, you did something wrong, they like smack your hand or something. He goes, this school, they got someone nailed to the wall. <laughs> Literally, that's, that was the only connection I had with the cross. A, a joke, a Catholic joke. And I remember when we would take the subway, the train in New York City, that there was one stop. Someone had climbed over to the tracks on the other side of the wall and just scrawled in the wall, Jesus saves. But I had no idea what that meant. There, there was even a Jewish joke, a bumper sticker, Jesus saves, Moses invests. You know, there was no context of it. There, there, was, there was even one... A hockey joke that I saw in the days when one of the famous hockey players in Boston was Phil Esposito, and the bumper sticker said, Jesus saves, Esposito scores on the rebound. And it was, you know, a hockey goalie makes a save and then someone scores. I had no context, no understanding. What does it mean Jesus saves? What does it mean the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin? And it was something that even though I received forgiveness and cleansing, the reality of it, the understanding of it, took some time to fully settle in. And often, even as believers, we understand it in part. So I want to go a little deeper here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, beginning verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is gospel 101. This is foundation 101. That Jesus the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to say those he appeared to after he rose. So he died for our sins, not for his own sins, but for our sins. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What's, what's interesting is that we don't realize today the horror of death on the cross. Not just the horrific suffering involved, but it was, it was the lowest form of death. If, if you think of a criminal being executed in the electric chair, or a criminal being shot by a fire squad, firing squad, that's nothing compared to death on the cross. I don't just mean the level of suffering, but it was the most humiliating death. It was the most barbaric death. If you're a Roman citizen, unless you, you murdered someone or were guilty of rebellion against the government, you couldn't be crucified. It was, it was for others. And, and ultimately, the Romans, who were quite cruel in their punishments, outlawed crucifixion because it was too barbaric and too brutal. And, and it, it was the, the ultimate humiliation for the worst of criminals and the worst of sinners. But that's where God sends his son to die for us. It's quite a message that comes out of it. Paul takes us up again in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And he says this, explaining how we have become justified by faith. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So maybe, in an extreme case, here's a righteous person. Here's an extraordinarily godly person. Maybe someone would die in their place, die to save their life. Maybe in an even more extreme case, you might die for a good person. Take their place so, so they can live on. But to die for a wretch? To die for, for the worst of the worst? I mean, picture that there's been somebody in and out of jail for years convicted of rape, molesting children, the worst of crimes. They've rejected all help. They're out of prison. They've rejected all help. They just terrorize people on the streets. And, and you've got the city's finest cardiologist that every single week saves people because of the, the surgery that, that, that he does. And nobody's as good as him in the state. And without him, people would be dying. And, and he sees this, this guy, this wretched guy, this rapist, he sees him about to get hit by a car and he pushes him out of the way and dies in his place. You think, well, that's the wrong exchange. The, we needed the good guy. We, we needed the one that was saving lives. And, and yet scripture says that Jesus, the Messiah, who is perfectly righteous, dies for us when we, were, when we were ungodly. Died for us in our sins. Died for us when we were away from him, when we were enemies, when we didn't want him. I don't know about you, but when, when I first heard the gospel, I didn't want to hear the gospel. I rejected the gospel. I pushed away. And yet Jesus dies for our sins. Go to Matthew chapter 27. I want to give you a vivid picture of what this looks like, but I, I want to take it deeper. I don't think I've said anything yet that's new to you, but I, I want to take this deeper. Matthew 27 Jesus is being falsely accused before the governor, Pontius Pilate. In verse 15, Matthew 27, 15, Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Now not all of the Greek texts have that word Jesus, but some do. 
And it's quite fascinating. So his name would have been Yeshua bar Abba, which is Jesus, son of the Father. That's what it would mean in, in, in Aramaic. Yeshua bar Abba, Jesus, son of the Father. And, and, and it, at that time, he had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus bar Abba. This other Jesus, if that was his first name, was a notorious sinner. He was a bad guy. He deserved to die. The death penalty was right for him. He deserved to be crucified under Roman law. So Pilate says, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? It's two different guys with the same common first name. You want me to release this Yeshua Bar Abba guy? Yeshua, son of the father? You want me to release this Yeshua guy that's called Mashiach, the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. So now, interaction involving his wife, now it comes down to verse 20. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. So, so this is a picture of us. We are Barabbas. We were the one that should have died. We were the one that should have been punished. We were the one that should have been hanging on the cross. Instead, we go free, and Jesus, the perfect one, takes our place. When you see it laid out here, you see the outrage of it. You see how extreme that it is. But you now think of the guilt of the whole human race, not one Barabbas, but hundreds of millions, billions of Barabbases, all deserving death. And now you think of the perfect righteous one, the one who never sinned, the one who's God himself who created the universe, taking our place. It's, it's almost outrageous. I remember as a fairly new believer hearing an evangelist preach in our church, and he, he preached from Luke's gospel, just four words, there they crucified him. So he just went through each word, there being Jerusalem, and they who that was, and crucified. And as he began to talk about the crucifixion, and began to talk about the death that Jesus suffered, everything in me was saying, don't do it. Don't go to the, I'm not worth it. I don't deserve it. I wanted to stand up as he was preaching and just shout, no, 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 no. I'll go. I deserve it. That, that's, that's a key step to truly being born again, to recognize I, I deserve death. Most of the time, we compare ourselves to ourselves, and we're not so bad. I, I remember in the days when I was shooting heroin and, and, and lying and stealing, 15, 16 years old, I was, I was talking to a junkie that was hardcore and had been messed up for years, and he was telling me about another guy, kind of watch out for this guy, and he said to me, he would steal money from his own grandmother. And I said to him, but you told me you stole money from your mother. He goes, yeah, but I never steal from my grandmother. <laughs> The book of Proverbs tells us that every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the spirits. Before I was saved, when I actually stole money from my father, wretched thing I did, lied to my friends, and was, was angry and full of pride. When I first went to a church service in August of 71 with the goal of pulling my friends out, when I first went... A young lady in the church wrote down in her diary, she went to high school with me, Antichrist comes to church. That, that's the reputation that I had. But I remember one day after my friends had been preaching to me, high on drugs, thinking to myself, if, if I see some old woman going into a store, I open the door for her. And if I see some homeless guy on the street, I'll give him a few cents. If there is a God... He knows I'm a good person. <laughs> so all the wretched stuff, all the ugly stuff, all the sinful stuff, 
all the unclean stuff, that didn't matter because I'd open the door for an old woman. And the thing is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. When I was in college, I got a notification that my license has been suspended for failure to pay a parking ticket. Well, I knew nothing of it whatsoever. And it, it happened when I was parked on the road in college one day. Must have been a place where I couldn't park, didn't see a sign, whatever it was. Got a ticket, but I never saw it. Someone just must have pulled it off the car. So I now had to appear before the judge to try to get things reinstated. And as, as I'm sitting there trying to think of how I'm going to approach this, because otherwise my record is clean, how I'm going to approach this and what I'm going to say, and, and different people are testifying before the judge. One guy gets up and he says, Sir, um, I asked for leniency. Um, you know, I'm here to appeal for the ticket my wife got for going through a red light. He said, Your Honor, the problem is that there, there was a, the brakes weren't working properly in the car. And, and my wife took the car out, and I failed to tell her about it. So she was trying to slow down, but, but that's why she went through the red light. I'm thinking, okay, it's a valid excuse. The judge says, how dare you let your wife go out in a car where the brakes aren't working? <laughs> okay. And then another guy comes up, and this is the early days. This is in the 70s where they might have some kind of database that they can electronically retrieve. The guy gets up, arrested for DUI, Your Honor. I'd like leniency. This is the first time I've, I've ever had an issue of drinking and driving. And, and the judge is listening and is almost ready to have leniency. And the court clerk next to him is typing some things up. And she said, sir, this is his sixth violation in a year. He goes, license revoked, out of here. I'm like, oh, OK, I'm just going to get up and say, I blew it, guilty, whatever. So there are only a few of us left, still waiting. And I, I turned to the guy next to me. I thought, this is a good opportunity to witness. And I said, think of when we stand before God one day. And, and we're going to tell him I'm a pretty good person. I, I'm not so bad, you know, because I'm comparing myself to others. And, and he's got a list of every sin we've ever committed. And, and then he turned to me. It turns out he was a believer. And he said in his record-keeping system is a lot more detailed than this here. You know, his, whatever computer he has is a lot more detailed than that. He knows things we've forgotten. He knows things we've thought and done that nobody else knows. Things that are so embarrassing. If we, if we put it up on the screen here with your name, you'd run out the building. Or for those that feel so self-righteous, well, let's, let's put your thought life for the last week up here for everyone to see. How many sexual crimes take place in people's heads and so on, and violating of God's word. So the guy said, yeah, I mean, God's detailed records are a, a lot greater than this court's. And I said to him, and only the blood of Jesus can wash us clean. And he nodded. He was a believer. And I've thought of that. If, you, if, if there's any sense at all that we could ever stand before God by our righteousness, we don't understand God. If there's any sense at all that we could ever stand up and boast about anything, we don't understand God and we don't understand ourselves. We're like Barabbas that should have died, but the Messiah died in our place. But, but that is only part of the story. I want to give a, a greater understanding of what it means, but then if he died in our place, how does that translate out for the rest of our lives? As I shared the gospel with my Jewish friends and rabbis over the years, I would always, of course, preach the gospel and talk about the cross, but it still seemed foreign. In, in the Jewish world, the cross is a very negative image. Jewish people think of the crusaders wearing crosses on their uniforms as, as Jews were given the choice of baptism or death. And, and they think of the cross as an oppressive symbol. It's not a beautiful, life-giving symbol. And and as much as I preached it, and I could give Old Testament prophecy about it, it still didn't seem to be something Jewish that they could take hold of. I was not raised in a traditional Jewish home, meaning I was not really familiar with Judaism in depth. I was raised in a more nominal Jewish home. Just like someone would go to church on Sunday you know, for Easter, Christmas, or baptism, but 
not really understanding what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. That was me as a Jew. So it was only after I was a believer that I began to study and learned that Judaism teaches a concept called that the death of the righteous atones. It speaks of the atoning power of the death of the righteous. What does it mean? Well, like every religion, Judaism wrestles with, okay, why, why does a little child die? What did that child do to deserve that? Or why is it that it seemed the godliest person in the community dies at the age of 33? And, and, and others, they're living, they're ungodly, they're living till they're 70 or 80. It doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. And, and, you know, bad things happen to good people. And, and why is this? So Judaism developed a concept of the atoning power of the death of the righteous. So, so think of it like this. Let's, let's put it in financial terms. Let's say that I'm, I'm a multi-billionaire and that, that all of you here, through bad decisions and irresponsibility and, and writing checks you couldn't cover and all of this and racking up credit card charges you couldn't cover, you, you, each of you ended up a million dollars in debt, and you're going to go to jail unless you can pay the debt, and you have no possible, you can't even put $3 together. And, and now, between the people here, we're talking several hundred million dollars of debt. What if I come along and say, listen, put it all on my card. I'm rich enough. I got enough credit on my card. Put it all on my, all the hundreds of millions, put it on my card, and you're now debt free. So that's, that's a financial picture. Pretty simple. Makes sense, right? So you've got the, the scale of all the debt here. But because my credit is so high and I have so much money, I can go all the way here. I can cover it. So through my generosity and covering for you, you go free. Judaism kind of has a similar concept, except in terms of, of righteousness. That, that this person who is so righteous and so godly and doesn't deserve death, deserves to live a long, happy life. Instead, they die at the age of 28. Why? Well, it was to pay for the sins of the generation. The, the, the generation was so guilty that judgment should have come. But rather than God judging them, he put it on someone else. And by putting it on someone else, who could pay for it with their righteousness. Again, this is just a traditional Jewish concept. If that generation would repent, then the judgment would not fall on them, but on that person. And they explain that's why sometimes little children, an innocent child dies. It was, they didn't deserve it, but they took the weight of the judgment. Again, it's a traditional Jewish concept. And to this day, if you have a, a famous rabbi, very religious rabbi dies, and Maybe several hundred thousand religious Jews go to the funeral. At the funeral, you'll hear someone give a eulogy and say, may his death be an atonement for the generation. That's what they're thinking, that, that, that he has so much righteous credit that he can pay for it. Of course, no human being is actually that good. No human being actually has that power, except the Son of God. Jesus, being perfectly righteous and being God himself, with his infinite righteousness, could take all the sins of every human being ever committed throughout history until the end of time, all on his own shoulders. And because of that, if we repent and say, God, forgive me, wash me clean, it, the, debt's, the debt's cleared, 100%. That's the power of his righteousness. Now, now look with me in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter Chapter 2. Beginning in verse 21. 1 Peter 2, 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, 
He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, quoting from Isaiah 53, in Hebrew, for you were like sheep going astray, also from Isaiah 53, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So there's, there's a part one to this, which is that he died for your sins. He fully took your place. He completely forever paid for your sins. And, and throughout eternity, your sins will not be brought back up to you. The worst thing you've ever did, the most embarrassing thing, the thing you hope that nobody ever knows about, it's all forgiven, cleansed, removed, paid for in full. It'd be like if someone looks at your credit score, it doesn't even show you ever had bad credit. God pronounces you righteous at that moment. When, when, when God forgave my sins in the end of 1971, what was done at the cross now became real in my own life. At that moment, even though I had not yet gone home and, and thrown, thrown out the needles and the the cocaine and the drugs I had at my house, even though I didn't throw that out, even though I, I didn't set things right with my father or, or anyone else, but that moment of truly asking him to cleanse me and wash me and receive him as my Lord, at that moment, he pronounced me righteous. And, and if he was writing a letter to me at that moment, he would have written a letter to St. Michael. Because in the New Testament, we're called saints, holy ones, Right? We are called saints, holy ones, and called to be holy. So call, this is what we're designated. At that moment, that's what you'd be called. You know, it would be almost like you were a pauper in the street, and now we're brought into the royal family. And in that moment, you're still there in your, your pauper clothes, you're filthy from head to toe, and someone calls you prince or princess. Because you have been transformed, even though it's going to now work itself out in your life. You've gone from the guilty to innocent column. Not just innocent, but declared righteous in God's sight. And I remember that in, in the weeks before that, the Holy Spirit had been convicting me of sin, making me aware of the evil of what I'd done, because prior to that, I boasted about my sin. Someone once said, first we practice sin, then we justify it, then we boast about it. I was in the boast about it stage before God saved me. But in the weeks prior to it, the conviction started to, to eat away at me. I felt miserable about the things I did, especially stealing money from my own dad. I felt miserable about it. And, and this guilt was just eating away at me. And that night after I, I truly surrendered and said, Lord, forgive me, and I'll never put a needle in my arm again. At that moment, I remember searching for the guilt. I thought of stealing money from my father. I, I thought about the, the thing that I felt worst about. And when I thought about it, there was, there was no guilt. I couldn't find it. It wasn't there because God had removed it. But, but notice, that's, that's part one of the transaction. There's part two. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Look in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Go with me back to, to Romans, the sixth chapter. See, one part of the transaction is he takes our place, Barabbas goes free, and Jesus dies. The one who deserved death goes free, and Jesus dies. But that's, that's only part of the equation, because with the Barabbas story, it doesn't say that Barabbas changed. Some people just want it like that. Jesus took my place so my sins can be forgiven, so I can live however I want to live. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. He dies so you can be forgiven, and now live the life you want to live. That's not the gospel. Romans chapter 6 says this, verse 5. For if, well, let me, let me back it up. 
Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I mean, that's what God did after all. Adam sinned, but rather than God destroying us, he poured out more grace. He sent his son. Should we sin more so grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. So the deal is this. When he died, we died. When he died, he didn't just say, okay, you're forgiven, go on, live your life. No, no. When he died, he's taking our place. He's representing us. So his death means our death. It means the end of our old life. It doesn't just mean sins forgiven. It means the end of our own life. We die at that point. And now just as he rises in newness of life, we rise in newness of life. As he died, we die. And now we live in newness of life. I've seen many people use the cross not just at a, as a get-out-of-hell-free card, but as a way to empower them to live their own lives. In other words, the American gospel basically says, this is who I am, this is how I feel, and God is here to please me. The biblical gospel is this is who God is, this is how he feels, and we are here to please him. Decades ago, A.W. Tozer wrote a great little essay called The Old Cross and the New Cross. The Old Cross versus the New Cross. And one of the statements he made was that whereas the Old Cross killed the sinner, the New Cross redirected the sinner. Here is your life now. You take a course and go like this. I began to think about the cross that's preached in the American, many American churches today, the popular cross, and I, and I rephrased it like this, that whereas the old cross killed the sinner, the modern cross empowers the sinner. We preach this false message that Jesus came to make you into a bigger and better you. Jesus came so that you can fulfill your destiny and you can dream your dreams and you can fulfill your goals and Jesus will, will help you to do all the things you want to do. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you die, and your dreams die, and your goals die, and your ambitions die, and your attachment to sin dies. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, Galatians 6.14, if I boast, I'm only going to boast of the cross of the Lord Jesus, by whom the world is crucified to me, and I'm crucified to the world. The cross means the end of your life, and now you lead a new life in which you find out what you're really made for. You find out what you're really destined for. You now live out God's dream and God's plan and God's goal for your life because you're not your own. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul puts it like this. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, look at this, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's no longer our life. How does he put it in 1 Corinthians 6.20? You were bought with a price. You are not your own. This is not my body. This is not my mind. This is not my life. He died. We died with him. Oh, we, we get that point. Praise God. We're forgiven. He took our place. But it doesn't end there. That's the, that's the part one. If, if we died with him, if he took our place, then now 
We rose in newness of life, and we now live in him. It doesn't mean you don't have a job or a family, or you can't watch the Super Bowl tonight or have some fun. What it means is it's no longer your life. You have been purchased by the blood. The one that sets you free now owns you. That's the deal. That's the transaction. And, and when he died, we died. The old you, the old me, not just dying to sin, but dying to self, dying to what I have control, my life. No, no longer. We die with him, and now we rise with him in newness of life. And it's his power at work in us to live new lives. It's his power at work in us to make us something of eternal value. And just as the cross empowers you to receive forgiveness, and the cross empowers you to have guilt removed, and the cross empowers you to be at peace with God, the cross also empowers you to live for God. The cross also empowers you to, to, to say no to sin. The cross also empowers you to, to bring meaning and purpose in your life beyond anything that you could possibly do on your own. Look at what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians, the second chapter. One of these verses we can meditate on until we see him face to face. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he gets it, okay, he died, I died. He lives, I live. It's his life in me. And, and many times I have prayed this, going through challenging seasons, where it seems they're just fleshly attitudes or fleshly desires and, or just immaturities or things and can't seem to rise above them. And I just say, God, demonstrate the power of the gospel in my life. Demonstrate the, the power of the cross and the resurrection in my life. Some of us still need to, to chew on the first part of this. Some of us still need to, to chew on the fact that he paid for all your sins and, and you don't have to keep paying for them. You know, somebody sinned against me some time back. They blew it, spoke something they shouldn't have spoken and, and came and said, Dr. Brown, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I said, hey, you're forgiven from the heart. Yeah, I, I was I'm stupid. I shouldn't act like that. I said, hey, you're forgiven from the heart. We're good. And a few days later, he was just feeling bad. He said, you know, Dr. Brown, that, you know what I said about you? I said, what? What do you mean? You didn't say anything. It's gone. <laughs> Forgiven. doesn't exist. That's just me as a human being. So when the devil comes, your own mind comes to beat you up. Man, I blew it here. I hurt my family. Jesus paid for that and settled it 100%. If you have truly received that and turned from it, it's one thing if we're still living in it, still living in disobedience and sin. But repentance is saying, God, by your grace, I turn away from that. That's not who I am anymore. I turn away from that. Forgive me, cleanse me. You don't have to keep going and asking for it again. And, and if, it's not, if it's not real to you, I'm not beating you over the head. I'm just saying, say, God, make it real to me. Let me see how everything, the whole debt I had was completely paid for. And it, it's not on the books. It's, it's literally not on the books. When God searches his records, it's not there. He, he, he casts our sin into the depths of the sea. He remembers them no more. And sometimes when I'm, I'm trying to feel so righteous by kind of like beating myself up for things in the past or things I you know, did as a believer, wish I didn't do that or acted differently here. And, and I have to be reminded, I, if God who's infinitely holy doesn't see that anymore, then I shouldn't see it. And, and if you say, yeah, but, but I made a mess of things and the consequences are still there. Ah, the consequences may be there. It's a reminder of the ugliness of sin. But God's saying, hey, let's fix this now. Let, let's, let's use everything that was meant to hurt you. Let's use it as a stepping stone instead of a stumbling block. Let, let, the, op let the obstacles become opportunities instead of beating yourself up. If God pronounces you righteous, accept it. And, and if, if you live with this torment and it eats away at you, I'm not criticizing you for it. I'm saying there's a liberty and a freedom he wants you to have. 
Maybe you struggle because you haven't said no to that sin. Maybe you struggle because you haven't surrendered that area of your life. So you say, Lord, I don't want to live like that. That's not who I am. I don't want to go there. I don't want to dive into that mud anymore. Wash me clean. And understand that when he washes you, you're completely clean. <laughs> completely clean. It's like you go back to the doctor and they do all the scans and all the x-rays and all the tests. They said, we can't find even a hint that you ever had this sickness. That's how it is. That's how it is. And, and by God's grace, you can live condemnation free. Amen. The Holy Spirit may convict you of wrong. The Holy Spirit may convict you when, when, when you, you, you go in a way you shouldn't go. Thank God for that conviction. Otherwise, you, you take a fall. But conviction, God says, you've sinned, come near to me. You've sinned, let's get this right. Condemnation is your guilty, get away from me. And as a child of God, there is no condemnation in Jesus. There's conviction which brings life. Condemnation brings death. So for some here, God, God wants you to live in freedom. I can sense the guilt that some of you are still under, even though you're a believer. And the thing from the past still torments you. God wants to remove it. That doesn't help you. That doesn't help you grow. That doesn't help you help anybody. That doesn't help you bless anyone. It doesn't bring you liberty. It's not a sign of spirituality. It's actually a sign of unbelief. Lord, I believe every last thing, every did, the ugliest, the most sinful, the most embarrassing. I truly believe Jesus paid for all of it, and I don't have to pay for it. If I broke the law, there are consequences for breaking the law, but I'm talking about in the sight of God, completely cleansed and called righteous in his sight. So what does it say in Hebrews 10? We have boldness to come into the holiest place of all. That's how we live, boldness to come into the holiest place of all as God's beloved children. Part one, part two, and we now rise in newness of life. It's not my life to live. It's his life in me. That also means that he can give me the power to say no to sin the next time. It also means that if he died and rose and we rose with him, that we can live different lives. And we'll never reach perfection in this world, but we can live different lives. We can live transformed lives. And some of you say, but you don't know the habits I've had. You don't know the strongholds. I know God. I know the power of the gospel. Yeah. And, and I have met people, some of the godliest, saintliest people I've ever met, only to find out they had some of the worst past. And sometimes those are the ones that, that change the most because they realize how helpless, how wretched they are. And they don't come to God boasting in themselves. And then they receive this new transformative life. And you think, that's the power of the gospel. I'll close in a moment. But years back, I went to a, to a prison in upstate New York to visit a man that was the most notorious serial killer in, in New York City history, David, David Berkowitz, who was known as the son of Sam, terrorized the city. I, I mean, whole traffic patterns changed. People wouldn't take certain trains. They, lovers' lanes were empty. People that used to hang out wouldn't hang out for fear that he was just going to go murder somebody. And I remember when he was arrested and just saw the picture of him, I thought, oh, he's a monster. And then I heard reports that, that he'd come to faith in prison and I thought, no, it's not real. It's just one of these prison conversions, just some story to get sympathy or to try to get out earlier. And then one of my friends got to know him and said, Mike, he's, he's really a different man. He's really transformed. And when it would come time for a potential hearing, a parole hearing, as to whether he would be released, I remember seeing a letter that he wrote to the governor saying, I do not deserve to be released. I'm a murderer. I took people's lives. I deserve to be in prison the rest of my life. This is the guy writing this as a believer. So I got to visit with him, and, and it was interesting. that the, the people whose lives he had destroyed, say the, the parents of an 18-year-old girl that he had killed, they didn't believe his, his story was real. And you could understand it. They themselves were not born again, and they could not possibly understand how someone could receive mercy from God for what he did. But the people that got to know him after, the reporters and the journalists and others that got to know him after, none of them could believe that he ever murdered anybody. And I remember when I said, hey, I want to send you some books and materials. And he said, well, 
I don't like to burden the prison guards. It's like extra mail for them to deal with. He's just, and he's, you know, he ministered to the mentally ill and the others in prison and just counseled people. And he just wanted to sing a hymn with us. You know, we were sitting there and, and I thought it's, it's remarkable. It's like this childlike guy worshiping Jesus. And, and yet he was a satanic murderer. That's the, that's the power of the gospel. And, and don't just accept where you are as the end. God wants to demonstrate the power of the cross through you. God wants to demonstrate the life of the resurrection through you. God wants to demonstrate what he could do through frail human beings. Human beings with weaknesses and shortcomings that God knows and we know. He wants to demonstrate the power of the cross through you. And, and the, the further you've blown it, the, the more wretched you are, the more glory he gets. Amen? And the more we realize this is God's power at work in us. So I just want to pray with you. If you're new and, and maybe trying to understand what this gospel thing means, maybe you come from other church traditions, may the light go on in your heart today. May you realize that all your good works can't do it. If, if you did good the, for, from here on, let's, let's say you're the lost person, didn't know the Lord, 30 years old, and you spend from 30 to 90 every single day feeding the poor, caring for the, the sick, sacrificing for the good of others. You did that literally day and night for the next 60 years. If this is the mountain of your sin, this is the accumulation of your good works. <laughs> you never, never in a million lifetimes pay for your sin. And whatever we do is tainted anyway. It's like getting your hands dirty with filth and muck and then putting that white paint, now painting the wall. It's, it's, it's dirty. But in one moment, all your sins, completely forgiven through what Jesus did. God wants that to be absolute reality to you. And if it's not, today just say, God, show me what it means. Jesus, I, I want to be saved. I want to be cleansed. But then understand the rest of it. He now owns you. You're bought with your price. You now live to do his will. Colossians 3, for you died and your life is now hidden in the heavenlies with Jesus the Messiah. A new life in him. And if you're a young person, say, I want to live my life, then you don't understand the cross yet. If you're an older person, say, well, God, doesn't, God only goes so far in my life, then you're not saved. Because when you're saved, you say, God, you own me. I belong to you. And by your grace, I live to do your will. And God can get something meaningful out of every single one of you. It's not too late for anyone. You haven't blown it too far. You, you haven't gone beyond the point of no return. You haven't wasted your life. God can redeem it. And the days ahead can be greater than anything you ever imagined. So close your eyes with me right now. Heavenly Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus to take these simple truths and cause the light to go on where it's never gone on. May guilt be removed. May condemnation be removed. May new life come. May we understand, Lord, not just the power of the cross to bring us forgiveness, but the power of the resurrection to bring us new life. Shine through this congregation and do amazing things through us in the days to come. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.